So, if you have any familiarity with the Bible whatsoever, you know that Jesus is the Son of God who came down from heaven to save sinners. To seek and to save the lost, Luke tells us. Uh, John calls him the light of the world. Uh, John the Baptist, not the apostle, but John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the story of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John's Gospel, we are at a juncture where Jesus is going to stop dealing with the crowds. And basically, we're a few days away from his crucifixion, and Jesus is going to withdraw from public ministry, and he's going to spend the remainder of the time focusing on the disciples, focusing on those who will be his apostles after his resurrection and his ascension. And so we are basically looking this morning at his last interaction, um, or well, rather, John's assessment, his summary after Jesus' last interaction with the crowds. Most commentators think that John chapter 12, 44 to 50 are summative of his whole ministry. Even if you don't take that view, however, 44 to 50 marks Jesus' last words to the crowds in John chapter 12. And so we're basically at the end. We're either just after or just before the very last words that Jesus speaks publicly to the crowds before he withdraws, spends time with his disciples, and goes on to be crucified. What we have before us then is the narrator's comments, who is John the Apostle, summarizing what has happened so far. In Jesus' ministry. Jesus has come to be the light of the world. To be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To seek and to save the lost. And two statements in this summary here in 36 to 41. Are central to understanding our text. To understanding John's assessment and John's summary of Jesus' ministry. The first statement that is central to understanding our text this morning is in verse 37. They did not believe. They did not believe. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. The second statement that is central to our text this morning and to understanding John's summary of Jesus' ministry is in verse 39. They could not believe. They did not believe. And they could not believe. This is how John summarizes all that really has transpired in John's Gospel so far. Jesus came to be the light of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to seek and to save the lost. But what was the result of it? They did not believe. Moreover, they could not believe. Let's look at each of these two statements in turn. First, they did not believe. In John chapter 1, the apostle tips his cards and tells us what we're going to read in the remaining chapters. In verse 11, he writes, He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. Right away in John chapter 1, he tells us what is going to be the result of Jesus' ministry among the Jews. He came unto his own, but his own people did not receive him. That's what plays out in the rest of the gospel. So we're led to expect that. 
In John chapter 1, 35 to 51, Jesus calls his disciples to himself who will become true believers, all except, of course, Judas Iscariot, who was a traitor and betrayed him. These are real, genuine believers. But by the time Jesus comes to die, not many more than these guys have believed. There are not a ton of believers. In John chapter 2 and verse 23, we read this. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. This might lead us to think, wait, wait a second. His own did not reject him. It says many believed in his name. But then we go on to read, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and knew what was in man. It's kind of a cryptic statement, is it? We wonder, what does this mean? But as John's gospel goes on, it becomes clearer what he means. There is some deficiency in this belief foreshadowed at the end of chapter 2, but we're not crystal clear at that juncture what exactly is the deficiency. But as we go on, we read in John chapter 4, Samaritans believe. These are not the pure Jews, right? These were not the covenant people, the old covenant people of God. These were considered by the Jews as basically being Gentiles. So the disciples have believed, the Gentiles have believed, and we've read at the end of chapter 2, many believed in His name when they saw the signs, but Jesus did not really trust them. What does that mean? We read on. In John chapter 6 and verse 66, we see the deficiency of these who had believed, but Jesus didn't really trust them. We see this deficiency manifesting itself. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So there was a kind of superficial response to Jesus and excitement about seeing the miracles that he did, about getting free bread, which looked like belief. And John calls it belief, I think, on purpose. He uses the same word to describe those like the disciples and those like the Samaritans who truly believe unto everlasting life. John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He uses that same word to describe people whom Jesus, um, who, who respond in some way to Jesus, but Jesus doesn't really trust them. And in the end, they don't really continue with Jesus, but they fall away from Him and they depart from Him. In John chapter 8 and verse 31 and following, I won't read the whole section, but Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, etc., etc. And they go on to insult Jesus In verse 41, they say, we were not born of sexual immorality, which is an insult pertaining to his parentage by Mary and presumably, as far as anyone with quote-unquote common sense would think, Joseph. They insult Jesus' parentage and then... They go on in verse 48 to say, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
And then in verse 59, they pick up stones to stone him. So, there is on the one hand, the disciples who truly believe unto eternal life. And the Samaritans who truly believe unto eternal life. But then there are all these, quote-unquote, believers who end up abandoning Jesus. Who end up insulting Jesus. Who end up trying to kill Jesus. And John uses the same word for both groups. This is a literary technique to get us thinking, what does true belief really mean? We're supposed to read about these different kinds of believers and ask ourselves, which kind of believer am I? This is why John uses the same word. Anyway, suffice it to say, they did not believe. The vast majority of the Jews were not the believers like the disciples who truly believed unto eternal life. The vast number of the Jews were not like the Samaritan believers who truly believed unto eternal life. The vast majority of the Jews were people who had an initial, superficial, positive response to Jesus, but eventually turned against Him and did not believe. This is what has transpired so far in John's Gospel. You read the same thing in Matthew, Mark, Luke. Of course, we know it was the religious leaders with the support of the Jewish people who petitioned to have Jesus crucified. We know that the story of Jesus is not the story of His acceptance among the Jews. We know that. And so John summarizes Jesus' ministry firstly with the statement, they did not believe. Hence, his first citation from the prophet Isaiah in John 12, 38. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He says this is fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. It's a rhetorical question. Who has believed what he heard from us? The implied answer is no one or hardly anyone. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, the implied answer is no one or hardly anyone. John cites this quotation from Isaiah and says, look, just like Isaiah said it would be, so it is. Nobody believes. The arm of the Lord is not seen and appreciated by most people. So widespread unbelief among the Jews pardon me, so widespread was unbelief among the Jews that John could simply say they did not believe. There were exceptions, but it's so widespread that John could just make a sweeping generalization. They did not believe. So that's the first statement as John summarizes Jesus' public ministry. The second statement as John summarizes Jesus' public ministry is they could not believe. He says in verse 37, they did not believe. And in verse 39, he says, they could not believe. Well, the first statement, they did not believe, is self-evident. If you've read the gospel so far, it's self-evident that they did not believe. And it's easy to understand. What does it mean they did not believe? It's easy to understand. They didn't trust Jesus. They didn't love Jesus. They didn't come to Jesus in faith. The first statement 
they did not believe is self-evident and easy to understand. This second statement, they could not believe, is not as intuitive. It's harder to understand and harder to accept. Firstly, we should know what this statement does not mean. When he says they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He, that is God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What that does not mean is that the people were neutral and open-minded and would have believed until God intervened to overrule their neutrality and to overrule their open-mindedness and to cause them to reject the Christ. We know that that is not what this means because the Scripture tells us in other places that this is not human nature. In Romans 1 and verse 18, for example, it says that men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. The Scripture doesn't teach us that human beings, ever since Adam sinned in the garden in the beginning, are neutral. The Bible tells us that ever since Adam sinned in the beginning, men are not neutral, but rather they tend towards suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Well, some are like that, admittedly, but all, that seems to be a very negative and cynical view of the world. You're, you're probably just taking that verse out of context, Pastor John. Well, let us turn to Romans chapter 3, a couple of chapters later, written by the same guy who wrote chapter 1 and 18, just a few pen strokes Later, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Ah, well, you need to understand your Bible a little bit better, Pastor John, and realize that that's Pauline theology. And you see, Paul taught that, but John didn't teach that. Well, let's look back at John chapter 6 and address that statement. Paul taught that, but John didn't teach that. And definitely Jesus didn't teach that. Well, what does Jesus say in John chapter 6 and verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So this is Jesus' assessment of human nature recorded for us by the Apostle John. I'm being facetious, of course, because Jesus and Paul and John and Peter all agree the whole scripture is harmonious, unified within itself in terms of its theological perspective and its teaching. It's uniform. Jesus 
teaches us that we do not have the ability. And it's not because we don't have the intellectual ability. It's because we don't have the moral ability. I'm not expositing John chapter 6. We did that. You can go listen to a sermon-length treatment on that verse, if you like, on our website. But Jesus teaches that the, the reason that no one can come unless the Father draws him is because our hearts are morally inclined away from God. In other words, he's saying in different words the same thing as the Apostle Paul. No one is righteous. No, not one. Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Jesus is telling us the same thing. So when it says here that God, in John chapter 12, verse 40, that God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, they could not believe. What it does not mean is that everybody was neutral. Everybody was open-minded. And Jesus came. And God looked down upon mankind, as it were, and realized, oh shoot, these people are going to believe in Jesus. I have to do something about this. Let me stop them. That's not what it means when it says that God hardened their heart and blinded their eyes and therefore they could not believe. Moving towards what it does mean then, it means at least, at least, God has not drawn these people. Surely, right? No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. If men tend to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, at least God has not graciously overruled their wickedness and, and worked on their nature such that they were inclined towards the truth. God has not pulled them towards Himself in faith. In order that they would believe, God has not called them to Himself effectually by His Spirit working in them to make them willing and able to believe. At least, at least this passage clearly teaches that God did not drop. At least this passage clearly teaches that God didn't give the requisite, necessary, sufficient grace to overcome the depravity in these people who were already not neutral, but disinclined away from God. Some take a passage like John 6.44, where it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And they say, yeah, that's true, but God draws everybody. Well, what do, you, what do you do with a section like this at the end of John chapter 12, where it says that God hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes so that they did not believe? Obviously, this passage at least shows, at least, that God did not draw to Christ Jesus. At least that God didn't bring these people to a point where they were willing and able to believe. 
I was speaking with a group of pastors a number of years ago about the discrepancy between their practice and their statement of faith. Their, their statement of faith said that they believed a certain thing, but in practice, they didn't observe that thing at all. In fact, they actually openly taught from their pulpit what was contrary to their statement of faith. And so I said to them, well, what about this part of your statement of faith? It just seems weird to me to say that you hold to this particular statement of faith if in reality you don't and you actually teach against it. And one of them who was a leader among the group, we were all sitting around um, just talking. It was at a pastor's conference I was at. And all these churches profess to hold the same statement of faith. And one of these men who was a leader among the group just laughed and said, well, we just ignore that part. Well, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But, but I would ask those who say God draws everybody. Yes, it's true that no one can come unless God draws them to Christ Jesus. But God draws everybody. I would ask them, but what do you do with a passage like John twelve forty, where it literally says, God has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, they could not believe. I suspect I wouldn't get a more compelling answer from them than I did this pastor's fellowship. There is no way of understanding this which doesn't at least, at least demonstrate that God does not draw everyone. Certainly those who did not believe were at least not drawn to state it mildly. But it doesn't merely say God has not softened, does it? It doesn't merely say they did not believe and they could not believe for God has not softened. It doesn't, it doesn't say they did not believe, they could not believe, for God has not drawn. It doesn't merely say that. It implies at least that, indisputably. But it doesn't merely say that. It says they did not believe, they could not believe, for God has hardened. Now, as John Gill says, God hardens not by any positive act, but by leaving and giving up men to the blindness and hardness of their hearts and denying them the only grace which could cure them. I agree with that, but I would add also further that God withdraws a measure of common grace in order to harden let me explain that a little bit. Simply because God doesn't extend saving grace to all does not mean that God does not extend any kind of grace to unbelievers. We all experience many, many kinds of grace every day. The very fact that you're breathing is because God is graciously sustaining your life. When we all deserve not only to die biologically, but also to go to hell. So every second that we're not in hell is actually grace. Every 
day that we're still breathing is grace. And in Matthew, Jesus teaches us that God sends the sun and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Now, we might think of that as being, you know, the blessings, the sun, and the curses, the rain, just come randomly upon everyone, and that's what that means. But actually, that's not what it means. It's taking sun and rain as blessings because it's an agrarian society. So you need the sun and you need the rain. What that verse is teaching us is that God is gracious in some way to everyone. That the righteous and the unrighteous can both grow crops. That the righteous and the unrighteous have another day here on planet Earth. Another day above ground. It's grace. That unbelievers could be around Christians and hear the gospel. That's grace. That unbelievers might feel a tinge of conviction of sin and guilt when they hear about God's law. That they might feel some level of affinity for Christ. Even if it stops short of a saving faith, that's grace. They're not utterly hard-hearted. Because there is a measure of preservation that God hasn't given them entirely over to their depravity. But has given them some grace to mitigate the effects of depravity so that we're not all Adolf Hitlers. This is grace which restrains and preserves our evil nature. God does not harden our hearts by acting as Satan would to get you to reject the gospel and to continue in sin. By tempting you to do that. God does not whisper in your ear, so to speak, this is a stupid message. Don't believe this. Only fools believe this. God doesn't put inclinations in your heart to run out and disobey God's law, etc. This is not how God hardens. Satan works that way, but God does not work that way. And that's what John Gill means by God doesn't harden by a positive act. But if we could say that taking back some grace is a positive act, denying is a positive act, then we could say in that sense, God does harden by a positive act. God is active in the withdrawal of Lent blessings to people, resulting in their being hardened. Remember, grace is not something deserved. Grace is not something owed. And for the unbeliever who is not covenantally promised grace, grace is not something which cannot be withdrawn. It's like a loan. You're living on borrowed time, they say. Borrowed from whom? From God, and He may take it back as He pleases. You are living with borrowed breath. You are living with borrowed softness of heart. You are living with borrowed conviction of sin. You are living with borrowed intellectual powers. You are living with borrowed affinity for Christ to whatever extent that there is any in your life. You are living with borrowed esteem of the church, and so on and so forth. If you live a relatively moral life in proximity to Christians and the gospel, exposed to truth 
And if you feel some level of positivity towards the church, towards the gospel, towards the Bible, towards Jesus, even if it stops short of a saving faith, it's because there is some grace at work in your life so that the wickedness of your heart does not utterly overrule you and make you stone cold to these things. God may withdraw that actively at any time. He doesn't owe you that. It's not yours to keep unless God should choose to leave it with you. It's the lender's property, not the borrower's. God is said to harden here in this passage when he withdraws even what common grace a man has or a woman has producing the same effect in them as Satan's mode of hardening would that they reject the gospel utterly that they come to hate it, that they come to despise it, that they don't want to hear it, that they run away from the light and indulge in all manner of wickedness. Satan does that positively by encouraging us down that road. God does it by withdrawing the grace that keeps us from that path. But the same effect is that somebody ends up utterly unmoved by the gospel. In fact, angry when they hear it. Hating it, not wanting to be around Christians, not wanting to read the Bible, not having any measure of esteem or respect for the things of God, but becoming utterly blasphemous and sacrilegious, wants nothing to do with Christianity or the church. This is what happens either when people listen to Satan's voice encouraging them to do that, or when God withdraws the grace that keeps them from that. Now, answering two questions will take up the rest of our time this morning. Why would God harden anyone to the gospel? And secondly, what should we learn from this all? Why would God harden anyone to the gospel? This is a hard thing to accept. But God has not purposed and planned to save everybody. Rather, God has purposed and planned to punish some for their sin in order to make His praiseworthy justice visible. Romans chapter 9 teaches this explicitly in verses 21 to 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
part of what God is doing in this world is making known His praiseworthy grace by saving some people. So that we look at a lost sinner who is now found, who was blind, but now he sees. And we say, amazing grace. Praiseworthy grace. But another part of what God is doing is condemning justly people who have rejected Him, rebelled against Him, for their rejection and rebellion. And giving them the punishment that they have earned for their sin. Which is not injustice. It's justice. It's not unfairness. It's fairness. The wages of sin is death. What do you earn when you sin? Death. So to some, God gives them their wages. In order that we might see His justice. In order that we might perceive His wrath against sin and His power to punish. To bring down even the lofty and the mighty who exalt themselves against God. The Emperor Nero, for example, was a wicked man who literally used to cover Christians in oil and impale them on stakes and light them on fire to to give light to his dinner parties. The Emperor of Rome. So the politicians and the who's who of Rome would come around while the Christians burned giving light. This is how wicked he was. How anti-Christ he was. Romans 9 says that God, desiring to make known His wrath and His power, endures with much patience these sorts of people. And then makes known, eventually, His wrath and His power by damning, by punishing. So we see the spectrum of who God is Revealed and manifest by how He deals with people. We see, yes, amazing grace, and at the same time, strict and severe justice in one and the same God. This is the context of Isaiah 6 and verse 10, which is cited in John chapter 12 and verse 40. Way back in Isaiah Chapter 6. It's a familiar passage to us. Not so much this verse probably, but what precedes it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Your, Your mind is probably already going back here. What's next? High and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Sound familiar? Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm going to skip down to verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
Then I, this is Isaiah, said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You see, the Lord wanted Isaiah to preach the gospel to the people. But in that context, actually not in order that they may be saved. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lay waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God's plan is to send Isaiah to these people, offering them salvation, offering them forgiveness of sins, offering them a new and right relationship with him. Through his son, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah chapter 1. This was the message. But what would happen is that God would withdraw all the common grace from these people that would preserve them. And they would plunge headlong into wickedness in spite of this message being proclaimed to them until God punished them. And we would see just how wicked they are. And we would see just how just God is. How strict and severe His justice is. And God would make known to us that glorious aspect of His being. It was God's purpose in Isaiah's day not to save through Isaiah's ministry, but to manifest his justice in punishing those ancient Jews who had went astray in the first place and would not repent. John tells us in John chapter 12 and verse 41 that this same dynamic was operative in Jesus' day. In fact, though Isaiah 6.10 was fulfilled to some extent in Isaiah's day, John here tells us in John chapter 12 that it was fulfilled ultimately in Jesus' day. And that that is actually what is most ultimately in view when God speaks to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah receives this revelation of the servant of the Lord who will make sins like scarlet, white as snow, who will be pierced for our transgressions and so forth, but that people are not going to believe his message. Isaiah goes and preaches this message and people reject it. But more ultimately, this servant himself comes and people reject his message. Isaiah understood it as more than simply being a dynamic that would be operative in his day, but a dynamic that the servant of the Lord himself would encounter. It's at the beginning of Isaiah 53 that it says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That same chapter that speaks about him being pierced for our transgressions starts with him being rejected. 
Isaiah understood that there was a coming servant and this would be the dynamic. That he would be rejected, that people's hearts would be hard, that their eyes would be blind. And so John says in chapter 12 and verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In other words, it was God's plan and God's purpose for the Jews of Jesus' day and to reject the gospel in order to show the world His severe and praiseworthy justice. As well as, of course, to bring about the crucifixion of the Christ. But that's not what's primarily in view here. You see, God wants us to know that He is unflinchingly just. God will not forgive the wicked who will not turn from their sins and take refuge in Christ. Period. Let me say that again in case you didn't hear. God will not forgive those who will not turn from their sins and take refuge in Christ. Period. It does not matter who you are. Even if you are the biological children of Abraham. God will send you to hell if you do not turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has planned and purposed to send some people to hell withholding grace and withdrawing common grace. Many times throughout history in order that we would understand this concept. God simply will not forgive the wicked who will not turn from their sins and take refuge in Christ. Well, I was in the church my whole life. doesn't matter. Well, this is who my dad was or my granddad was. It does not matter. Well, I tried to be a moral person. It does not matter. God's justice is strict. God's justice is severe. It is just. Don't start charging God with unfairness. He's only giving people what they deserve, what they've earned. It is just. But it is strict and it is severe. And it's God's plan to show us this by planning and purposing that some people will not be saved. Withholding saving grace from them. Withdrawing what common grace they have and then damning them justly for their sin. In order that the rest of us would look and take a lesson. Don't play with God. God is not playing. This is not a drill. This is life and death. This is heaven and hell. Do you realize what we are reading? We are reading about the damnation of human beings. They did not believe. They could not believe. Why? Because God withheld saving grace from them. And withdrew common grace from them. That they would have needed if they were ever to be saved. Why did He do it? 
in order to show us His justice. Just how serious He is about sin. Just how severe and unflinching He is in His justice towards sin. Don't presume that God will forgive you in spite of your neglect of Christ. We're moving on to what should we learn from this, by the way. The second question. What should we learn from this? Don't presume that God will forgive you in spite of your neglect of Christ. He won't. Don't presume that you have tomorrow. You may not. As I said last week, quoting from John Donne, there will come a day when the bell tolls for thee. You literally may not be here tomorrow. But even if you're still alive tomorrow, God may so withdraw common grace from your life. If you are an unbeliever, God may so withdraw common grace from your life such that the tinge of guilt and conviction you may be feeling even right now under this preaching is gone and you're hard-hearted. Some, there's some measure of interest that you might have in this message. Some sense of, I should think about this. God may withdraw common grace from your life so that you end up no longer thinking, I should spend some time on this, but I, I don't care. I don't know what I was thinking on Sunday. This is stupid. I'm not wasting a second thinking about this. Don't presume that there will be left tomorrow any tinge or any trace of positivity towards Christ or affinity towards Christ that you might be feeling today if you are an unbeliever. You may become utterly hard to the gospel and time may find you unstoppably proceeding down the road to perdition. God having utterly given you over. As we saw last week, we should diligently and earnestly make use of whatever light we have. Don't remain outside of Christ on the pretense that you don't have enough information. If you have heard the gospel, come to Christ in faith. If you have heard that there is sin and guilt, look desperately, urgently for salvation from it. If you have serious questions standing in your way, which are not merely a pretext for unbelief, then research like an unprepared college kid for an exam. Frantically. Urgently. For the day is coming when the library will be closed, so to speak. When the Wi-Fi network will be deactivated and you can no longer Google stuff. If you have heard that there is sin and there is guilt, make it a priority to figure out what to do about that. And you're going to see that you need to come to Christ. If you realize that Jesus came down from heaven, 
you're going to realize that no one is a better guide than for how to get back up there. Stop listening to everybody else. As the Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Hear the voice of Jesus calling, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If anyone thirsts, come to me. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have everlasting life. Come urgently, frantically to Christ Jesus. Don't presume. This is what we should learn from this. Deal with Christ today. This is how we should respond from this sober summary of Jesus' public ministry among the Jews. Where they did not believe. They could not believe. Where God hardened them. This is what we should learn from this. What a fearful thing it would be to be described like this, to have, our, to have this be our obituary. He did not believe. He could not believe. God hardened him. If there is any flicker of affinity for Jesus, conviction of sin, don't extinguish that, fan it into flame. Deal with Jesus earnestly, urgently, frantically, now, not even this afternoon, now. Deal with Jesus. This is what we should learn from this sober summary of Jesus' public ministry.